the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. Today we're going to talk with Cy Gart. He's a scientist and the author of The Works of His Hands, A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. He'll join us later this hour. And then at 5 o'clock, we'll talk with Tim Winter, who is president of the Parents Television Council. We're going to talk about Hollywood and how they're marketing their most explicit content to kids and how much more difficult it's become for parents to monitor what's uh, what their kids have access to and to determine whether or not something is appropriate given the system that's currently in place. That's coming up at 5 o'clock. Taking a look at some of the day's headlines, Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced plans for the House to vote on a war powers resolution that aimed to limit the president's military action toward Iran, saying Democrats have serious, urgent concerns about the administration's decision to engage in hostilities against Iran and about its lack of strategy moving forward. Well, that vote took place earlier today. We'll tell you more about that momentarily. Well, the Democrat authored resolution would reassert congressional authority and rebuke the president's decision last week to take out uh, Iran. Iran's top general, General Qassam Soleimani, in an airstrike without their consent. Republican leadership aides argue that the proposed war powers resolution is toothless. It has no enforcement capacity, saying it has no chance of becoming law. Well, the expected vote uh, came after the president declared Wednesday that Iran appeared to be standing down in the wake of the missile strike on American bases in Iraq that he said resulted in no casualties. And while the attacks marked the latest escalation with Tehran in the aftermath of Soleimani's killing, they appear to open the door to reducing tensions after it became clear that no American forces were killed. Vice President Pence told CBS News on Wednesday that Iran has asked its allied uh, militias not to attack U.S. targets. Still, the region remained on edge, with American troops said to be on high alert. General Mark Miley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, told reporters it was perhaps too early to tell if Iran would be satisfied that the missile strikes were sufficient to avenge Soleimani's killing. Defense Secretary Mark Esper said officers, or rather officials, expect Shiite militias to try to undermine the U.S. presence in the region whether they're directed by Iran or not. Soon after Esper's comments, two rockets landed in Baghdad's Green Zone on Wednesday night, likely fired by Iran-backed militia groups. They exploded in the perimeter of the U.S. embassy but did not strike the compound. No casualties, uh, casualties rather, were reported, according to um, uh, Trey Yankst on the scene. More Democrats are urging Pelosi to send the articles of impeachment against President Trump to the Senate so a trial can get underway. These uh, those joining the list include Senator Dianne Feinstein from Pelosi's home state of California, as well as Senators Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Independent Angus King of Maine, who caucuses with the Democrats. Pelosi has been holding on to the articles since December in an effort to get Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to agree to certain conditions for a trial, such as allowing witnesses to testify. Meanwhile, Senator Lindsey Graham, the Republican chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, told John Hannity that he plans to introduce the 
resolution Thursday calling on Pelosi to deliver the articles of impeachment to the Senate. The South Carolina senator said the Senate would take up Trump's impeachment trial next week. And for anyone who cares, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry revealed on Wednesday that they would be stepping back as senior members of the royal family. But it appears not everyone was informed about the announcement beforehand. A source close to the palace said uh, Wednesday that some members of the royal family were not consulted before the Duke and Duchess statement was issued. Earlier, the pair of uh, Sussex uh, explained they will be splitting time between the United Kingdom and North America and we're working to become financially independent, which, by the way, means something quite different. Different than you or I saying we're going to be financially independent. We don't have a stipend from the queen or uh, the uh, father-in-law. Senator Dianne Feinstein and Joe Manant, uh, Manchin joined Democrats pressuring Pelosi to send impeachment articles to the Senate. And a watchdog group is suing Adam Schiff over release of private phone records. The Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals has lifted an injunction against border wall funds. And Iranian TV is reporting a different version of missile uh, strikes on the U.S. bases in Iraq. Texas is facing 10,000 potential cybersecurity attacks from Iran per minute, according to Governor Greg Abbott. Uh, No further details on that uh, claim. And those who can't find Iran on a map, and there are plenty of them, are less likely to support the strike on Soleimani. Mexican national who killed Brian Terry has been sentenced to life in prison. That, of course, is fast and furious connection. Cancer deaths uh, rates have dropped by the largest amount on record, according to Axios. And a judge has ordered Google to turn over Jesse Smollett's emails. I'm not sure what for. He's apparently going to be on the final season or at least the finale of the program that made his name known. On this day in history, 2009, Illinois, the House voted for 114 to 1 to impeach Governor Rod Blagojevich, who was accused of soliciting bribes for political appointments, including Barack Obama's vacant U.S. Senate seat after Obama was elected president. The Illinois Senate would unanimously vote to remove Blagojevich from office 20 days later. On this day in history, 1931, Bobby Trout and Edna May Cooper break an endurance record for female aviator as they return to Mines Field in Los Angeles after flying to a Curtis Robin, uh, a Curtis Robin monoplane continuously for 122 hours and 50 minutes. And on this day in history, 1958, President Dwight D. Eisenhower, in his State of the Union address to Congress, warns of the threat of communist imperialism. 1987, the White House releases a January 1986 memorandum prepared for President Ronald Reagan by Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, showing a link between U.S. arms sales to Iran and the release of American hostages in Lebanon. Well, as mentioned, the House of Representatives today voted in favor of a war powers resolution meant to limit the president's military action toward Iran following an escalation of tensions between Washington and Tehran. The resolution passed 224-194, mostly along party lines, but not exclusively. But both parties had some defectors. We deserve the respect from the administration and the Congress deserves under the Constitution. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said on the House floor, the Constitution of the United States calls that there be cooperation when initiating hostilities. Well, actually, the War Powers Act for wars, but that's another matter we won't go into now. The resolution is non-binding, but is meant to reassert congressional authority and rebuke the president's decision to take out Iranian General Qassem Soleimani in a drone strike last Friday while he traveled to an airport in Baghdad, Iraq. 
Now, he had a travel ban, so he should not have been in Iraq, but that's another story as well. Trump did not consult with congressional leaders ahead of the attack that killed the Iranian general and afterwards sent Congress a notification explaining the rationale, but kept it classified. The resolution requires the president to consult with Congress in every possible instance before introducing United States armed forces into hostilities. That would be unprecedented if it were actually applied. The measure also handcuffs uh, the president when it comes to future strikes. The resolution says Congress has not authorized the president to use military force against Iran. The measure directs the president to terminate the use of United States armed forces to engage in hostilities in or against Iran or any part of its government or military unless there is specific blessing from Congress. The measure was sponsored by freshman Representative Elisa Slotkin, a Democrat from Michigan who is a former CIA analyst and Pentagon official who served in Iraq. The resolution was widely panned by Republican lawmakers in the House who called the measure a political move against the president and accused Democrats of empowering Iran by condemning the White House's airstrike. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking uh, just before the break about the House passed war powers resolution in rebuke of the president's actions against Iran. Well, the first war powers resolution was passed back in 1973. It was an effort to prevent presidents from using the military without congressional approval. Well, since then, there have been questions of presidential compliance, and they have become, well, rather common with controversy stemming from President Bill Clinton's actions in Kosovo, for example, President Obama's actions in Libya. Well, Congress has allowed its war powers role to a road since the passage of the uh, uh, authorization of use of military force in 2001 to fight terrorism after the 9-11 attacks and passage of another AUMF for the invasion of Iraq in 2002. And in fact, uh, this and previous presidents have argued that that is the authorization that uh, that they need in order to move forward with uh, action against individuals deemed terrorists. Well, the president, uh, the current president, has slammed the war powers resolution as unconstitutional and called on it to be repealed. The House voted on Thursday. It came a day after the administration briefed lawmakers on its actions there. Democrats and several Republicans called the briefings inadequate, adding that officials didn't provide enough detail about why the attack was justified. Vice President Pence said today that Soleimani was traveling the region, making plans to bring an attack against American personnel and American forces. He says it was not possible to share full details of the intelligence with lawmakers. When it comes to intelligence, we have to protect sources and methods. There's only certain amount we can share with every member of Congress. He went on ABC Good, Met, uh, Good Morning America to say, but those of us who have seen all the evidence know that there was a compelling case of imminent threat against American personnel. The president said Thursday that he had calls from numerous senators and numerous congressmen and women saying it was the greatest presentation they'd ever had. Maybe someone said it precisely that way. Anyway, the vote also came after Iran retaliated uh, for the Soleimani killing by launching missiles at two military bases in Iraq, but uh, House American... uh, Uh, troops. No casualties were reported. Well, the Ukrainian passenger plane that crashed shortly after taking off from Tehran's international airport on Wednesday was shot down by mistake by an Iranian anti-aircraft missile, according to Pentagon officials. The revelation comes as Ukrainian investigators reportedly are awaiting permission from Iranian authorities to examine the crash site and look for missile fragments 
Iran has denied that a missile took down the Boeing 737 bound for Kiev, and its officials have blamed a technological malfunction for the aircraft's demise. Uh, President Trump, when asked about uh, what could have happened to the Ukrainian International Airline flight, said someone could have made a mistake on the other side. And in fact, it wouldn't necessarily would uh, have required an individual to be manning the system at the time. It is, from what I understand, uh, designed to respond under these circumstances when an aircraft is seen in the air and may have been misunderstood by the mechanism as the United States responding. Um, the TOR is a, a Russian-made missile system. Russia delivered 29 TOR M1s to Iran in 2007 as part of a $700 million contract that was signed back in 2005. Iran has displayed the missile in military parades as well. It didn't immediately respond to the Ukrainian remarks. However, uh, one general, the spokesperson for the Iranian Armed Forces, denied a missile hit uh, the plane in comments reported Wednesday by the FARS news agency. Since that report was filed. Uh, the uh, prime minister from Canada and others have confirmed that, yes, the aircraft was, in fact, downed by a missile. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell told Republican senators during the party's weekly lunch on Thursday today that he expects House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to transmit the articles of impeachment against the president to the chamber as soon as Friday, meaning a trial could begin early next week. McConnell was not relying on inside information, but was looking to give scheduling guidance to senators before they left town for the weekend. Politico first reported McConnell's comments. The guidance comes as Pelosi is facing rising pressure to transmit the articles of impeachment with members of her own party signaling that they're losing patience with her delay. Pelosi continues to indicate to Democratic colleagues that she plans to hold on to the articles at least until McConnell releases a resolution outlining the terms for a a Senate trial. In the Senate, Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham introduced a resolution demanding Pelosi immediately transmit the articles of impeachment against the president. This resolution is a simple statement by the Senate. It is our job as senators to dispose of the articles that were lawfully passed, Graham said. The speaker's attempt to shape or delay the trial is unprecedented. It cannot stand. McConnell today also signed on to a Missouri GOP Senator Josh Hawley's resolution to dismiss the articles because of a failure to prosecute. Pelosi has said she won't hold the articles indefinitely and suggested she could send them soon. Pelosi has held on to the articles since last month in a bid to extract favorable terms for the trial that the Constitution requires be conducted in the Senate. But the GOP leaders insist that the Senate should first launch the trial, then resolve issues surrounding witnesses later, as was the structure during the Clinton impeachment, declaring he will not haggle with Pelosi and accusing her Thursday of playing irresponsible games. Mitch McConnell has said the Senate will move on to other issues next week if Pelosi doesn't transmit the articles. Republican Senator uh, Cory Gardner is what you would expect in a swing state like Colorado. He's affable, supportive of his party when it benefits his state, unafraid of independence and not angry about any of it. Like Senator uh, Kirsten uh, Sinema and others, um, he has a kind of personality that fits all of that. Well, his uniqueness allowed him to successfully unseat a purple state Democratic incumbent to become Colorado's junior senator in 2014. It also makes him the real target of impeachment. 
The impeachment of President Donald Trump, according to Trey Gowdy in a PC published today, is not about Trump's removal from office of the more than one dozen Republican senators whose conviction of votes would be necessary to remove the president from office. No one can identify more than three Republican senators who might even conceivably vote to do so. And there are Democratic senators like Doug Jones from Alabama and Joe Manchin from West Virginia who are just as likely to vote for an acquittal as any Republican senator are is to a vote to convict. Even the practicality of the math could not sway the likes of House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff, who lectured us that impeachment was his responsibility. Public hearings didn't change public opinion. Changing prosecutorial theories did not change public opinion. A gale force media tailwind pushing impeachment has not changed public opinion, but Schiff knows what is best for you, even if you don't. Uh, So he must press on. So why would otherwise savvy politicians like Speaker Nancy Pelosi continue to push a case for which there is zero likelihood of a conviction? Again, quoting from a piece by Trey Gowdy, who used to serve in Congress, um, who now is uh, an observer. He says this impeachment exercise is most assuredly about removing someone from office. It's just not about removing Trump from office. And he goes on to suggest that it's really about something else entirely. It's rather interesting uh, uh, thought about the whole thing. But he goes on to say, why would these same politicians rush to advance impeachment articles, pass those articles with no Republican votes, declare the president an existential threat to the republic, and then place those articles in legislative purgatory and refuse to transmit those articles for trial? Well, he suggests that, uh, in fact, it is uh, designed at uh, the race on the Uh, the Democrat side for president. And while time doesn't permit me to share any more of the details, you can look for Trey Gowdy's piece. And I'll try to return to it another day next week on what the trial is really all about. If in fact there will be one, an interesting take on all of it. Coming up next, we're going to talk with Cy Gart. He's the author of the works of his hands, a scientist's journey from atheism to faith. Stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Here's the question. How does one go from an avowed atheist to a person of faith? Well, in his new release, The Works of His Hands, biochemist and author Cy Gard, he takes readers on a personal journey from being raised in a militant atheist family to that of a fully committed follower of Jesus, a Christian. And while he had no intention to believe in God, as a student and early in his career, the science that he loved led him to question his worldview. In fact, he says, and I'm quoting, my scientific knowledge had made me doubt my atheistic upbringing and I was ready and waiting, but not yet a believer. Then one day while I was driving on the Pennsylvania turnpike, the Holy Spirit took hold of me. I pulled over, wept, and thanked the Lord for his mercy. Well, the book is titled The Work of His Hands, A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. And my guest, Dr. Cy Garth, is a biochemist and has been a professor at New York University, University of Pittsburgh, and Rutgers University. He has authored over 200 scientific publications and four previous books and has served as division director at the National Institutes of Health. He is also editor-in-chief of God and Nature Magazine and vice president of the Washington, D.C. chapter of the American Scientific Affiliation. He is a lay leader at the United Methodist Church, and he joins us today to talk about his book, The Works of His Hands, A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Thank you. Well, you um, uh, write in your book that 
Um, your own salvation came through the understanding that the natural world and its description by science is a strong witness to God's existence and majesty. Can you explain a little of what you mean by that, given the fact that you were a scientist for much longer um, before you came to recognize God's hand uh, at work, as the, the title of your book suggests? Yes. Well, I, I, was, I actually still am a scientist. I've been a scientist uh, my whole adult life. But I was also an atheist, and as you mentioned in your introduction, I was brought up in a very militant atheist family uh, and taught that not only should we not believe in God, but that the idea of God is impossible, and religion, in particular Christianity, are evil and, you know, should be avoided. So that was my my original upbringing, and it was a long journey to get from there to where I am today. Uh, and as as also was in the introduction, uh, the first part of that journey involved the science I was learning, which was uh, going against the strong materialist views of how the world is that I had been taught as, as a youth, and uh, was opening up a lot of questions in my mind about that kind of atheist dogma that I was learning. And when I began probing into those questions, I found myself rejecting that kind of strong atheism and ended up more or less as an agnostic. I really wasn't sure what to believe. You describe your journey as long and winding and say that you write the, you wrote the book more as a guide to the perplexed for people of faith or uh, open-minded atheists who wish to embrace the modern world of science and technology and enjoy the intellectual and emotional beauty of science without giving up any part of their equally beautiful and soul-enriching faith in God. Talk a bit about who you want to reach and, and your approach in sharing not only your journey, but uh, what you learned along the way. Yeah, I I had a very specific audience in mind when I wrote this book, and that is uh, that audience would be anyone who, especially Christians, who are uh, wondering about their faith and who have been told by the media and by the very strident voices of new atheism that you have to choose between God and science. You have to choose between your faith. You might have been brought up in a in a in a very devout Christian household and then you go to college and you learn uh, about biology and physics and evolution and you <clears throat> you you know get the idea either from professors or from pastors or both that you can't have both. You have to choose one or the other because Science and Christianity are in conflict, and the whole goal of of my work, and I'm not alone, there are many of us Mm -hmm. trying to do the same thing, is to show that that is a myth, that the conflict between science and Christian faith is is not real. It's, uh, It's made up. And it is, it's easily destroyed as soon as you actually know enough about science and enough about the truth of Christianity. You divide the book into two parts. In the, in the first part, you focus a lot on, on, on your experience, your quest for knowledge that brought you to question your materialist assumptions and some of the larger mm-hmm. questions that I think are, are familiar to many of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I start out talking about uh, a little bit about physics. I, I will say there's a lot of science at the beginning of the book, but it's not. It's it's very accessible mm-hmm. to non-scientists. So, uh, don't readers should not be worried about that. Uh, but I do talk about some of the very strange results of modern physics, which are, you know are not the kinds of things we learn in high school about inclined planes and and pulleys and things, but very complex stuff 
about atoms and, and electrons and particles. And when you get into that level, it turns out that physics is not terribly rational. There are all kinds of seemingly magical things that go on in when you're talking about how you know, electrons can be both particles and waves at the same time and all kinds of other things that just don't make a lot of sense in our minds, but they're true. And when I learned about that, and that's, as I said, that's the first chapter there. Uh, when I learned about that, I started wondering about the whole claim that Christianity uh, or religion in general must be false because it, it's irrational. And then I realized, well, wait a minute, uh, so is science. <laughs> I mean, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to our minds. It makes sense mathematically, but that's about it. So uh, that kind of destroyed my first argument against the idea of religion. And after that, I talk about what I was learning in biology and biochemistry, which is my own field. And the incredible beauty and complexity of, of even simple cells is just staggering, especially when you learn the details. And I just found it hard to just accept the idea that this was all accidental. This is all just, you know, from natural uh, events that occurred by chance. And I started thinking, well, I don't know, there must be something else going on. I didn't know what it was. I still didn't believe in God. I was, I've also always been fascinated by human beings, by the, the incredible, uh, power of the human brain, the creativity, imagination, art, music, humor, uh, science itself, all of this is, is brand new in the universe, and it only find, you only find it in human beings. And I, I was asking myself, what, what, what is it? You know, what, what caused that? How do human beings get to be the way they are? And I didn't have a good answer for that. Mm -hmm. So th these are some of the questions that were, you know, poking holes in my original uh, uh, wall of belief in, in strong atheism, and I was rapidly losing that. And, um, and then I began realizing that science has a lot of limits. There's a lot of things that science does not answer. And all scientists know this. The whole concept of scientism, which is the philosophical view that all questions can be answered by science, is not something that most scientists share because scientists know from their own experience that there's a whole range of questions, even questions about the natural world, that science is, is not able to answer. So at that point, uh, I, I guess you could say that, that that is the first part of the book and the first part of my journey. And what it left me with was a sense that uh, I really didn't know what was going on. And uh, I was no longer hostile to the idea of God, the idea of religion. I still had a long way to go. And the way I developed that part of my story was uh, I was be I became open to people I knew who were Christians. Uh, one of them brought me to a church for the first time in my life. I was in my late 40s when that happened. And I was expecting a horrible thing. You know, I, I didn't know what to expect in a church. I'd heard all these horrible stories about, <laughs> you know, fire and damnation and brimstone and all kinds of things. And I, I was, I walked in, I was absolutely terrified. I don't think I've ever been that frightened, you know, walking into a church <laughs> and, and the pastor started speaking about love and that was it. And I couldn't believe it. And, you know, people shook my hand. Uh, they wished me peace and it was very pleasant. And I was very surprised and realized, well, I guess I really have been lied to. Uh, you know, it was, it was not a horrible experience at all. It was actually quite pleasant. And 
I will say that since I became a Christian, I've been in many churches, many denominations, and I have never had anything other than a wonderful experience. So, um, you know, I, I wasn't just lucky, I think, <laughs> that any any church you can walk into, especially if you're a diehard atheist, you're going to be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a sure. quick break. Again, we're talking with Dr. Cy Gart. His book is titled The Works of His Hands. We'll take a break and be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with my guest, uh, Dr. Cy Garth. He is the author of The Works of His Hands. And in the book, he is, I should mention, a biochemist, and he shares what he learned and is still learning during his uh, career as a scientist in search of purpose and meaning. He discovered Christianity, to uh, paraphrase C.S. Lewis, as the light by which everything else may be seen. His insights offered in narrative and creative storytelling provide a roadmap for reconciling science and faith, both for spiritual seekers and uh, peeking over the, uh, the fence of the yard of agnosticism and those who are sitting on the pews looking outward. Uh, just before the break, we were talking about the first half of the book. In the second um, half of the book, you really um, uh, cover many of the issues and questions that are presented against God in the academic and scientific uh, settings and explain the foundations that um, are false on which they rest. Can you talk a bit about the second half of the book and how it fits with uh, your journey and others who might be seeking? Sure. Um, well, what happened was I, I, I wasn't expecting to become a Christian at all, uh, even after I had kind of rejected my materialism and my uh, uh, you know, my original atheism, I, I was kind of floating around looking at various things, you know, new age stuff and spirituality in general. But uh, what happened was, and this is the last, this is covered in the last chapter of the first part. Uh, I, first of all, I had a couple of dreams uh, in which Jesus Christ appeared to me and I didn't know it was Jesus. It was a man, but those dreams were very powerful. And uh, they led me to wonder if perhaps uh, that was the answer, <laughs> you know, Christianity. Um, I decided to read the Gospels, and when I did that, I had never, of course, cracked the Bible before, but at this point, I went straight to Matthew, and I read it, and it, it seemed convincing to me. I mean, I didn't necessarily believe it, but it certainly didn't seem like a fairy story. It didn't seem like anyone had made that up. And then I read the Acts of the Apostles, and that read to me like actual history. It didn't, again, it didn't sound like this was some kind of a conspiracy to, you know, to fool the masses into <laughs> believing in, in, in religion. It, it, it sounded very real. And the story of Paul, of course, was, was very moving to me. Um, and so I was about, I was really thinking about this as a possibility, but I couldn't quite get over that threshold. I, I, my training had been too intense and too long. And uh, I was actually dragged over the threshold, as, as you mentioned in the introduction, while I was driving one day uh, by the Holy Spirit, who, who came to me, and uh, it's described in detail in the book, but mm -hmm. basically I found myself preaching a sermon and to myself, and that sermon did not come from me. <laughs> I didn't even know some of the concepts that were in it, but when I was done, it was I was it was clear to me that that Christ is real, the Holy Spirit is real, and I became a Christian right there at that time. 
But now I'll get to your question because that caused a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if I was going to believe in Jesus Christ as a as a fully committed scientist, and and I, I didn't know any Christians, I I certainly didn't know any Christians in science, and I didn't know what to do, and I had a lot of questions I had to deal with, like you know, what about the Bible? Is the Bible true? Doesn't the Bible have contradictions? And doesn't the Bible say things that are not scientific? I had to understand the, you know, what about evil? What about all of these questions that, you know, I had always brought up myself when arguing with people who were religious and were trying to convert me. And, you know, I I had to answer those questions uh, as well to myself. And I did. And I found it surprisingly easy to do. And when I thought about it, I mean, one of the things that people often bring up is why doesn't God give me a sign? And sometimes when I tell people about the dreams and the experience driving that I had, they say, well, nothing like that has ever happened to me. Why doesn't God come to me and give me a sign? And the answer to that is that I remember once I had come to Christ, that God had given me many signs in the past, all kinds of things uh, that had been pointing to belief in him. And I had simply ignored them. And in one case, I actually was felt emotionally moved by something that I saw and that seemed very much in tune with the idea of of God. But I just rejected it and I just chalked it down to, you know, some emotional uh, delusion or something that was affecting me. And I rejected that. I wasn't listening. I wasn't open. And it wasn't until, you know, my study of science opened me up that I was able to hear these calls to Jesus. And once I could hear them, I eventually was able to respond. So that was one question that I was able to deal with. In terms of the Bible, luckily, I I came across many Christians uh, who are scientists uh, I read a book called The Language of God by Dr. Francis Collins, who's now the uh, director of the NIH, uh, a famous geneticist, and who is an evangel- evangelical Christian, and who actually I've come to know, and, and he's an amazing man. And his book, if nothing else, it showed me that I was not the only one. <laughs> I thought I was the only scientist who would ever believe in God. And then I I discovered a whole universe of people, uh, mm-hmm. both living and in the past. I found out that almost all the scientists in history were Christian up until the last few decades, actually. And that includes Pasteur, my heroes, uh, you know, Alexander Fleming and uh, obviously, uh, the well-known ones like uh, Copernicus and, and uh, Maxwell and Faraday and Robert Boyle. These are all giants of, of early mm-hmm. science, and they were all not just Christians. They were devout Christians, and they wrote about Christianity. So all of this had been hidden from me, and I, when I learned it, I, 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 also, I also found out there were many Nobel Prize winners who were Christians, and I actually had met one of them, at least. I may have met two, I don't remember, but one I met. And um, the whole idea that, that no scientist can be a Christian, which is what I thought, I honestly thought that, I thought it was too contradictory, it's just nonsense, and uh, it's, it's, it's what I call a big lie. It, it, it's well-believed by many, many people, especially younger people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's taught on some university campuses. Uh, unfortunately, I believe there are some professors, I've known a couple, who will stress that. If they're teaching biology and evolution, they'll say, well, you know, obviously this is not the Bible you can't believe in uh, in God if you're going to accept modern biology. And that's simply a false statement. It's completely untrue. 
I, I just love the fact that you're telling your story. And each uh, chapter, I should mention in the book, includes discussion questions. Uh, you have a comprehensive appendix where readers can find more extensive information. It's written for anybody who's ever been told that the realities of science call for the rejection of God, as you've just described. And it really is uh, an approachable book, as you mentioned uh, at the start of our conversation, that I would highly recommend. I wish we had more time, but we are out of time. I want to thank you for the book and for taking your valuable time to talk with us here today. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Really appreciate it. Again, the book is titled The Works of His Hands. Dr. Seigart is the author and is currently available in bookstores. In fact, who's the um, the publisher here? Kregel is the the publisher. A great read, and you should find some encouragement, those of you who have uh, family members and friends who seem like they're just outside of the, the possibility of the gospel reaching them. Be encouraged. Again, the works of his hands, Dr. Seigart. News and traffic up next. When we return, we'll talk with Tim Winter, president of the Parents Television Council. We'll talk about how Hollywood is marketing the most explicit content to kids and how the various platforms have made that even easier. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Six minutes after five o'clock is our time. Well, although the nation's leading nonpartisan family television watchdog group has good reason to be optimistic heading into 2020, there's also cause for concern for families who are looking to protect their children from seeing explicit content. The Parents Television Council says that last year we witnessed a near total transformation of the TV industry as we knew it. Digital technology has dramatically changed how families access entertainment. Streaming services have upended the TV industry and they provide immediate access to the most vile content that Hollywood markets to younger viewers. Well, the president of the Parents Television Council, Tim Winters, is sounding the alarm. He joins us today to talk about the challenges that lay ahead. Tim Winters, thank you so much for joining us. Georgine, good evening or good afternoon to you from Hollywood. It's a pleasure to be on the horn with you here. Uh, Thank you so much. Well, I'm happy to know that there are some good things on the horizon, but in the broader context, there are some significant challenges. Tell us how um, Hollywood is managing to market explicit content and how the various platforms in which uh, entertainment is fed to our children uh, is making that more challenging. Yeah, we've noticed, you know, here at the Parents Television Council, our, our mission is to help parents protect their children from the graphic sex violence and profanity that is so pervasive in our entertainment media culture today. And uh, over the last, oh, year or two, we've seen uh, a very sharp and we think very dangerous turn. Uh, instead of, of Hollywood just treating children as collateral damage when they are trying to push their explicit content onto adults, we now see that many in Hollywood are actually pushing some of their most explicit material directly at children. Uh, they're doing it um, very surreptitiously. Um, it's uh, more and more being done through the streaming media technologies like Netflix and Hulu, Amazon Prime, uh, those types of uh, streaming platforms. Uh, it's very difficult for parents to access and monitor 24-7 what their kids are consuming because it's being consumed not just in the family room with the TV set on, but in the palm of their hands on their phone or on their the laptop computer or pad they use for their school. It's, uh, it's really becoming a very vexing uh, uh, challenge for parents, for families, and that's why we're here to help try to protect them. Now, in in the past, there have been 
efforts to have some sort of mechanism that parents can look to to help them determine what's appropriate for their kids or not. And uh, Christian Post uh, published an article just recently that pointed out that early last year, Congress actually ordered the Federal Communications Commission to review and report on the accuracy of what um, of its TV content rating system that's designed, at least theoretically, to help parents in in that effort. Can you tell us what the uh, FCC said and um, how uh, television, how Hollywood is responding in terms of helping to equip parents and to protect children? I think most parents uh, are very familiar with the motion picture rating system, you know, an R or mm-hmm. PG-13 or PG. There is a similar uh, system for television. You turn on the TV, you can see it in the corner, TV-14, TV-PG. And the intention is to have that system help uh, help parents make good media choices. What we've learned and what the FCC basically validated for us is that um, those those ratings are frequently they're they're very frequently wrong. They're only wrong in one direction, meaning that they market uh, explicit stuff to younger children when they shouldn't. Um, the networks decide for themselves what to rate a program, and they have a financial conflict of interest. If they rate it as mature audiences only, a lot of advertisers won't sponsor it. So there's, there's a, a whole uh, number of reasons why it's inaccurate, and the oversight of the system is handed to the very individuals who rate the, sh- the shows inaccurately to begin with. So if a parent is going to try to rely on that ratings to make a good choice – Frequently, they're being misled. The FCC reported on that. They said that the oversight is lacking. And, uh, and you know, if it's, I, I think of an analogy. Many of us go into a grocery store. We see the box of food, and we look at the back of the box and say, how many calories, how much fat content, how many carbohydrates and protein and so forth, because we want our children to ingest healthy food. So, too, should we have a system that allows parents to make good choices about what the media their children are going to ingest. It has to be healthy for them. Well, my understanding is the FCC uh, report review uh, indicated that the system that's currently in place falls far short of what was at least intended. Uh, Has there been an adequate response from those who are guardians of that kind of rating system that is supposed to inform parents? The guardians of that system have said and done nothing. The report came out in May of last year. Uh, we are demanding a response from the industry-controlled board that oversees the rating system. Uh, There has to be an improvement to the system. It has to be more consistent and accurate and transparent. And what we're also asking them, calling on them to do, uh, while the TV networks, the broadcast and the cable networks use the rating system, even though it's inaccurate, at least they still all use it, the, the streaming platforms that I mentioned, Netflix and so forth, some of them use the TV system. Some of them use the movie system. Some of them use their own system. Some of them don't use any system. Some of them use different systems. So how can a, a parent possibly do their job when, when, they, when it's impossible to really understand what content is in these shows that is increasingly being marketed to their children? So one of the things I understand you're advocating is a uniform system across broadcast cable and streaming media platforms that would provide the kind of useful information for parents that would translate from one medium to the other. That's exactly right. You know, we, we, as much as we would like to tell Hollywood what they can or should pr- produce for families, uh, we can't. We have our cherished right of, of free speech in America, and we can't force them to produce something that we want. 
but at least we can we can make them rate it accurately. They should disclose accurately what the content is comprised of so that we as parents and families can make better choices. So are you optimistic? I mean, the fact that the FCC commissioned a report, it, it confirmed what you had been saying all along. Are you optimistic that there is going to be movement in the right direction and that there's going to be a, appropriate pressure, if you will, on the producers of this entertainment uh, to conform or at least some other uh, system in which others who are not within the industry will have the authority to, to come up with a system that's useful? Great question. And the answer is yes, we are preparing for uh, a big battle. Um, we, if, if the industry, uh, the industry has been handed um, the ability to govern their own actions, you know, from a libertarian standpoint, it, it's 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 good that that government isn't telling them what they have to do, mm-hmm. but that requires them to to act honorably, responsibly, and and consistently. And if they're not going to do that, then uh, we think there is a place for the Congress to saber rattle and to say, you know what, uh, we need to have a system that serves the needs of parents. Right now, Hollywood is hiding behind this rating system to to push out very explicit content, saying that it's a appropriate for children when it's not, and having absolutely no consequence for, uh, for being dishonest about it. Uh, the Congress, it's, it's high time for a system that really serves parents, not protecting Hollywood. For listeners who are interested in following your efforts, what's the best way for them to do that? Oh, we welcome anybody to come to our website and learn and be an activist if they want to and just be a more informed parent. Our, our website is parentstv.org, parentstv.org. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a treasure trove of information. We want to empower parents to make the very best choices they can. And if they are unhappy with the system, we want to give them a microphone to speak up, speak out, and let their voices be heard. Well, I so appreciate your leadership and the work of the Parents Television Council. And thank you for talking with us today. A pleasure, Georgine. I would really recommend the website. It is a great uh, resource for what's going on and some of the things that are uh, at least efforts that are being made to try to uh, better equip parents. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we come back, I want to tell you a little bit about a movie I saw just the other night. It's opening in theaters. 1917 is the movie. More about that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I had decided some weeks back that I really wanted to see a movie that was coming out, 1917. Of course, it's about the Great War, uh, about World War I, and from the brief clips that I saw, it looked very interesting. Now, I kind of developed an interesting uh, interest in war movies uh, shortly after marrying Dan Rice. I would never have gone to a war movie thinking, oh, I'd like to see that. But now I've come to appreciate a number of them that are very well done, that tell something of... Uh, the history of these periods in the in world history. Well, this movie, 1917, it tells the story of two young British soldiers at the height of the war. They are both lance corporals, uh, and they're given a, what seems like an impossible task, a race against time. They have to cross enemy territory. And when you're talking about no man's land and trench warfare, it's just a, an impossible uh, task in this race against time to deliver a message that could potentially save some 1,600 of their fellow soldiers, one of whom happens to be the brother of one of this pair. The vast scale of World War One is really the feature of this uh, movie, and the cinematography in that it provides this uninterrupted cinematic experience as they're working their way through the, the trenches and in through uh, no man's land and some of the areas that have been profoundly impacted by war. It was absolutely 
fascinating. Well, World War I demanded unthinkable sacrifice on the part of these young people. And one of the things that struck me was that this task was given to these two very young men. But it reminded me that that's precisely who fights these wars. Well, the idea of this, uh, this whole thing was sparked by stories uh, for Mr. Mendez, the director of the film, his grandfather had told him, uh, had shared about his experience as a lance corporal in the First World War. Uh, the Great War, No Man's Land, the trenches and so on was all part of uh, this whole thing. It is immersive. It is visceral, continuous. It's as if you are uh, going along one journey alongside these individuals and how they got some of the, the, the images along the way that, again, seem seamless is absolutely fascinating. I would recommend 1917. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I know my husband declared immediately this is Oscar worthy. This should be at the the top of the list. And I think uh, based on a number of factors, I would definitely agree. I mention it because it's opening in theaters on um, Friday. And so for those of you who are interested in uh, the movie, opening weekend is always a great time to see the thing. 1917, the movie coming out in theaters this Friday. So... Oh, and uh, Clark reminds me, it won Best Picture at the Golden Globes. Thank you, Clark. I I did not know that. I can understand why. So that opens in theaters this weekend. If you're not typically someone who enjoys war movies, while there's a little bit of language, it's more about the journey of these two individuals and less about um, the hand-to-hand conflict, if you will, uh, that typically makes up much of, uh, of war films. Anyway, in theaters this Friday. All right, taking a look back at some of the news that developed over the last um, uh, few days, uh, President Trump uh, has headed to, to his first campaign rally for, of the election year, flush with cash, chafing at impeachment, hoping to capitalize on his order to take out Iran's top general. That's actually taking place now. Uh, the president is in northern Ohio uh, for a, a rally taking to the campaign trail a day after pulling back from the brink of war in Iran, if if that's the scenario uh, that is uh, accepted. The campaign event in Toledo offers the president the opportunity to spotlight before a friendly crowd his decision to order the fatal drone strike against the Quds Force commander Soleimani while keeping the U.S. at least for the moment out of a wider military conflict. Uh, the president's reelection campaign has already used Facebook ads to highlight the president's decision to strike Soleimani, regarding, uh, regarded rather as Iran's second most powerful official. We caught a total monster, he said, uh, when he was departing Washington on his way to this rally. We took him out, and that should have happened a long time ago. Well, last week's killing of Soleimani brought long, simmering tensions between the U.S. and Iran to a boil. Iran in retaliation, as you recall, fired a barrage of missiles uh, this week at two military bases in neighboring Iraq that house hundreds of U.S. troops. With no casualties, the U.S. or Iraqi troops, the president says he had no plans to take further military action against Iran, would instead enact more sanctions against the Islamic Republic. And it seems that things have simmered down at least somewhat. Now, a proxy war, which has been ongoing for a number of years, is likely to continue um, on the the part of uh, Iran's proxies, but nonetheless, uh, hostilities uh, and air strikes, uh, at least for the moment, seem to have come to an end. But this begins for the president for the first time in an election year, his first rally. And my understanding is there will, will be three of them uh, over the next short period of time as the campaign season officially 
heats up in that 2020 is the year in which ballots will be cast for or against the president and his rival yet to be chosen among Democrats. Now, one of the challenges for Democrats who are seeking the nomination for the party is that uh, the impeachment, which has now been delayed, means that those who are looking for some face time and uh, time on the ground in these early states are going to be sitting in the Senate working on this impeachment. And that is a challenge that some of the candidates um, have already indicated is going to make this a very challenging season for them. Now, this is, of course, for those who are sitting senators, and there are several of them seeking the Democrat Party nomination. So it, it's going to uh, put a wrench in their efforts to gain the support of would-be voters uh, for uh, their effort to gain the nomination. So this will be an interesting start to the season for them as uh, the, uh, the whole political season heats up in earnest. Well, in other news, Chick-fil-A CEO Dan Cathy, he says in a new letter that the company inadvertently discredited what he calls outstanding organizations when it changed its giving strategy and pulled funding last year from the Salvation Army and the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Cathy, in a letter to the American Family Association, also says the company hasn't waned in its corporate purpose to glorify God. He addressed the letter to AFA President Tim Wildman, who has uh, written Kathy and asked the Chick-fil-A CEO two questions. The questions, will Chick-fil-A publicly state that it does not believe the Salvation Army or the FCA are hate groups because of the ministry's beliefs about sexuality, marriage and family? Kathy and his letter applauded these ministries. As you have seen, recently we announced changes to our giving strategy at the Chick-fil-A Foundation, he wrote. These changes were made to better focus on hunger, homelessness, and education. We understand how some thought we were abandoning our longstanding support for faith-based organizations. We inadvertently discredited several outstanding organizations that have effectively served communities for years. Some also questioned if our commitments to our corporate purpose was waning. Let me state unequivocally, it is not. Earlier in the letter, Kathy has said he agreed with his late father, Truett Kathy, who founded the company on biblical principles, writing, My dad was deeply committed to his Christian faith, Dan Kathy wrote. My siblings and I share his deep conviction to live out our faith by serving with generosity and humility in the marketplace. Since 1982, our corporate purpose daily reminds us that we are here to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us to have a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. Indeed, it is our faith and purpose that drives our mission for serving great food in a way that demonstrates care for you on a daily basis. Well, Wildman on Tuesday said the letter from Kathy was positive news. This response, he wrote, was a welcome clarification. Wildman wrote in a letter to AFA supporters, It appears that Mr. Kathy understands how many evangelicals perceive the company's decision as he stated that these Christian groups were inadvertently discredited, inadvertently being the operative word. The fact that Dan Kathy called these two Christian groups outstanding organizations will mean a lot to evangelicals. Wildman said the company will continue to monitor Chick-fil-A's corporate uh, giving, at least for the foreseeable future. Most of the Christians I know love Chick-fil-A and want to trust the company to uphold uh, scriptural principles, Wildman went on to write. We have all been huge fans of Chick-fil-A and want that to continue. Well, Kathy said the intent of Chick-fil-A's corporate giving has always been to have impact, not to make a statement or support a political or social agenda. 
In the future, our company will seek to make a greater impact by addressing the challenges of hunger, homelessness, and education, he wrote. Chick-fil-A will give a faith-based and other, rather give to faith-based and other organizations that we believe to be highly effective in a particular area. Grant recipients will likely rotate as we assess from year to year partners who help us meet our stated goals. Also, our operators in your communities will continue to invest in local causes that are meaningful at their discretion. Additionally, our family will continue to fund and operate our family foundations and give to other charities of our choice. We have been entrusted with much to share and the needs are great. So this is the latest iteration of a response by Chick-fil-A to try to clarify what um, he seems to suggest was a misunderstanding in terms of their focus and shift in funding in response to criticism from those who oppose their core Christian values and uh, opportunities that have been withheld because of uh, those values. Well, I won't start on this. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. Uh, I will tell you uh, later in the next uh, next segment that the um, Oregon Court of Appeals heard oral arguments today related to Gresham Bakery Sweet Cakes by Melissa. Uh, as you probably recall, the U.S. Supreme Court declined to um, take up elements of the case, so it has been remanded back to the Oregon Court of Appeals. We'll tell you uh, a little bit more about the hearing that was held today, a decision not expected for some time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, it can be useful and instructive to observe the turning of a decade by looking back on what life was like in America a mere 100 years ago. In January the 2nd, 1920, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was 108.76. Today, it's over 28,000 points. Hmm, what a difference 100 years makes. In 1920, the U.S. had become an economic power, which is remarkable considering the bloody war to end all wars that ended just two years earlier. Republican presidents shifted their attention from foreign entanglements to economic growth. Hmm. Sounds familiar. The beginning of the Roaring Twenties uh, featured new rights for women, including the right to vote, uh, daring flapper outfits, cigarette smoking. It also included prohibition, which led to the rise of Al Capone and the mafia. People should have been convinced that attempts to regulate human behavior by government fiat only works if the public is willing to obey the law, which in the case of liquor, it clearly was not. The one thing that hasn't changed in the past 100 years, and for that matter, since the first humans walked the earth, is human nature. One can change styles of clothing and hair, change modes of transportation, even change politicians, but human nature never changes. Greed, lust, and the quest for power are embedded in each of us in every generation. Well, the impact of the Industrial Revolution found more people living in big cities than on farms for the first time beginning in 1920. That year also launched what we today call the Consumer Society. America's total wealth more than doubled between 1920 and 1929. As the website history.com made note, people from coast to coast bought the same goods thanks to nationwide advertising and the spread of chain stores. Listen, did the same music, did the same dances, and even used the same slang. Many Americans were uncomfortable with this urban, sometimes racy, mass culture. And for many people in the U.S., the 1920s brought more conflict than celebration. Well, isn't that the same today? 
Have we learned nothing? Well, the tension between people with opposing political and social views and religious beliefs has increased these past 100 years because contemporary social media and the 24-7 news cycle in which revolution sells better than resolution continues. Cars, washing machines, some new forms of birth control, other creations gave especially um, uh, new freedoms and burdens for women. Radio united the nation and phonograph records, 100 million of which sold in 1927 alone, created a common culture, even if some older people didn't like the modern music. As with Frank Sinatra and Elvis Presley of the 40s and 50s, some older folks in the 20s rejected the dance hall lifestyle and what they saw as the vulgarity and depravity of jazz music and the moral erosion they claimed it caused. But for the younger generation, it was a new world in which the future looked bright. What will America be like in 2120? In 1920, no one could have foreseen a Great Depression or a Second World War, much less the prosperity and culture, cultural changes that would come or the threat of nuclear annihilation. The saying that the more things change, the more they remain the same has never seemed more accurate or providential. One wonders not only what will happen over the next 100 years, but let's say over the next 12 months. Well, the Oregon Court of Appeals is hearing or rather heard oral arguments this morning related to the Gresham Bakery sweet cakes by Melissa when they refused or rather declined to make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. The same case has been in front of the court before, you might recall. In 2015, the Oregon Bureau of Labor and Industries found that the owners of Sweet Cakes by Melissa had violated Oregon's non-discrimination statutes when they refused to bake a cake, a wedding cake, for a same-sex couple, claiming doing so violated their religious beliefs. Well, the Oregon Court of Appeals affirmed that ruling in 2017, but last June, the U.S. Supreme Court vacated that ruling and directed the Oregon court to review its decision in light of the Supreme Court's 2018 ruling in favor of a Colorado baker in Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission, assuming that there is more clarity in moving forward. Well, in that decision, the Supreme Court overturned a Colorado ruling against a baker who refused to serve a same-sex couple. The court said the state government had exhibited anti-religious bias uh, in by uh, concluding that the baker violated Colorado's non-discrimination law. It said more about the approach of the state than whether or not uh, the merits of the case uh, merited a, a, an overturn. Well, the Oregon dispute began when Rachel Bauman Crier went to the bakery with her mother, mother rather in January of 2013. They made, uh, met Aaron Klein, who asked for the date of the ceremony and the names of the bride and groom. Well, you can imagine the rest as it unfolded. Uh, After going uh, all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, the case has been uh, sent back down to Oregon again. There will be a process um, uh, for uh, the hearing today. Each side was given 30 minutes for oral arguments. The judge uh, had the freedom to ask questions. Petitioners uh, could reserve some time to respond to arguments made by the respondent and so on. The court won't issue a decision today, of course, following oral arguments. The court's going to take the case under advisement and issue its decision at a later date. We don't know how much later, but that's um, what's likely to happen. Because this has all been before the court before, my guess is in view of uh, the Supreme Court decision that they were aware of long before hearing oral arguments today, that it shouldn't take too long Uh, for them to um, give their decision. And that, of course, will determine what happens next. There's no specific timeline to issue that decision. uh, But again, given uh, the contours of this particular case in the broader context, it's likely that we'll hear a decision sooner rather than later. That's my speculation anyway.
Well, Portland Public Schools is at it again, asking voters to approve another bond measure to upgrade schools. Since 2012, voters have approved over $1 billion in bonds, money that was spent on upgrading and rebuilding dozens of schools. Since the passing of the 2012 bond, the district has improved 51 schools. In addition, Franklin and Roosevelt High Schools have been modernized. And Fabian has been uh, completely rebuilt. Grant High School reopened in the fall of 2019 after a remodel. Under the 2017 bond, money was allocated to rebuild Kellogg Middle School, a school that's been closed for a decade. Madison High School has been gutted and construction is well underway. And the mayor and school board recently broke ground for the new Lincoln High School. The $790 million bond was supposed to cover Benson High School as well, but an outside audit found that the district had underestimated their construction costs. No big surprise there. That's fairly typical. The district was millions of dollars short. Benson was in the 2017 bond. There is a shortfall. And so first thing on the list is making sure we have enough funds to finish that project because it's something we promised the voters we would do, says a Portland school board member, Andrew Scott. He says he's going to work to make sure what happened in 2017 doesn't happen this time around. Good luck with that. Going forward from here, we've put a lot of safeguards in place. Our bond accountability committee is going to uh, be looking at um, all these. We're bringing in more outside expertise to make sure we don't underestimate the cost going forward, he says. And the board's going to be asking a lot of those hard questions as well. Questions, I think, taxpayers in the area would have thought had already been asked last time around. Well, as far as um, uh, how much the 2020 bond will ask for uh, is unknown or what projects it will be slated for, but uh, it will be asking for a significant amount. The original plan starting back in 2012 was to do nine high schools. The last three remaining are Cleveland, Jefferson and Wilson. Notice Grant is not on that list or rather Benson. Um, Scott says his staff will spend the next couple of weeks and months putting together that information so it can be finalized by June, the deadline to make it on the November ballot. What I can tell you, he goes on to say, is that our goal is, uh, as a board, is to keep the tax rate at the current level. Voters were uh, really generous in 2012 and 2017, and in passing previous bonds, these bonds are going to be uh, rolling over Uh, the next five to 10 years. So our goal is to keep the tax rate at the same level. Hmm. Also in the list are health and safety upgrades throughout the district. That's something that parents are really concerned about. Seismic safety in the buildings continue to make sure the water is lead free, etc. We'll be looking at all those health and safety issues as well. Again, Election Day is uh, in 2020 is the 3rd of November. And this new um, New bond measure will be on the November ballot for those in the Portland public school area to vote on whether or not more money should be forthcoming. Hmm. We're going to take some time on Friday and take a look at the lighter side of the news. Um, There's a lot going on, and I know that for those of us who care deeply about our country, our culture, our neighbors, our Uh, friends and so on, that we are fervently praying for the country. And we'll certainly spend some time uh, taking a look at what develops over the next um, 24 hours, right up until the start of the program. Um, But in view of the fact that we're going to be taking a look at the lighter side of the news, I just want to mention that it's not because we don't take seriously the things that are happening, anticipating the upcoming election, anticipating uh, hearings that could begin as early as next week in the impeachment trial of the president. Uh, the conflict between the United States and Iran and the implications of that, not just for those who are in the region in Iraq, but for all U.S. military personnel 
uh, who are threatened by um, operatives of uh, of Iran. Uh, so I know we take very seriously all of these issues and are in prayer for wisdom for those who are in positions of leadership making decisions. Uh, whether or not we like the individuals and personalities who hold those positions, the truth is at this very moment, these are the men and women who are charged with deciding and determining the course of our nation. We need to pray fervently for them, that they would make uh, decisions, that they would uh, apply wisdom, that they would seek truth uh, through this whole process that may even exceed their own capacity for the sake of the nation and those who are impacted by decisions made in Washington and elsewhere. So we will certainly uh, take a look at the lighter side of the news tomorrow, but we'll keep one eye poised looking at other issues as they're developing as well. All right, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we will wrap things up right here on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news, the first time in 2020, the new decade. So I hope you will join us for that. And we'll also let you know some of the things that are coming up the following week. So I hope you'll join us and uh, take a look ahead. Well, extreme high tides, that's what they're describing is uh, going to be the case along the Oregon coast. It could push water up to four feet higher than usual. I love a storm on the Oregon coast. This seems like, you know, quite the storm to be an observer of, but you don't want to be caught in. Uh, Again, we're being told that massive tides dragging up the shore by the gravitational pull of the sun and the moon. It's going to wash up on the Oregon coast this weekend, giving researchers a glimpse of what Um, they say could be the result of changes in the climate in the future, posing a a challenge to coastal communities. Well, the high tides forecast for Friday, Saturday and Sunday, informally known as king tides, occur a few times a year when the Earth is closest to the moon and the sun. Well, the gravitational pull of the celestial bodies can bring water up to four uh, four feet higher than an average high tide. And as the planet warms, mostly due to... um, uh, levels in, in the atmosphere from fossil fuels, ice sheets, uh, green uh, Greenland melt, and so on. Water also takes up more space as it warms in a process known as thermal expansion. So while you might enjoy a day of uh, storms along the coast, um, as they're suggesting, this may be more like what the coast will be like in the future. Well, in areas where dunes and bluffs are getting uh, impacted every winter, they're going to get worse. That's what an interim director of the Oregon Climate Change Research Institute says. Flooding of roads, homes, businesses, other types of coastal infrastructure that happens periodically today will become more common, he says. Now, this typically is the result of the proximity of the Earth to the sun and the moon. But he's suggesting there are other forces that might change that in terms of frequency in the future. Well, looking forward, Newport, one of the Oregon, um, one of the, uh, the coast's biggest population and tourism centers, could see somewhere between 12 to 47 inches of sea level rise. I'm hesitant to mention some of this because uh, throughout my entire lifetime, we've heard specific predictions of what's going to happen given this environmental uh, impact or that. So I have to admit to being somewhat skeptical. But what we're being told is what's happening this weekend along the Oregon coast, we could see uh, at some point in the days ahead. At Astoria in the north, they say the coast could see between 2.4 to 35 inches. That's a huge span of sea level rise and the southern end of Oregon in Port Orford uh, sea levels could rise from 6.7 to 42.5 
inches. Again, a huge span. Researchers are using what are referred to as citizen scientists to bolster their bolster their efforts at learning where the sea level rise will pose the biggest threats. An army of volunteers with the King Tide Project, toting cameras and smartphones, are going to fan out across the coast this weekend to document where the high water is uh, having the most substantial impact. The project began in Australia in 2009, spread across the world rather quickly, and the efforts to document king tides on the Oregon coast got its start in 2011. It now boasts a trove of photographs from high tides over the past decade, and that will be repeated this weekend along the Oregon coast. Well, anyone can participate. They simply upload their pictures to the project's website, tagging them with the location where they were taken. So it's somewhat unscientific, but citizen uh, involved in at least providing images of areas purported to be um, consistent with where they're identified. Well, the weekend's king tides are expected to be accompanied by strong winds, rain, large waves. So anyone looking to participate should exercise caution when near the ocean. By next week, the king tides will be, uh, will have rather come and gone, but flooding and erosion are expected to become more frequent threats in the long term of the Oregon coast with sea levels rising. If they do in fact rise, there's no possibility of anything happening other than those things getting worse. So we'll see if this set of predictions is more reliable than the dozens of uh, predictions over the course of my lifetime with regard to what will happen in the future. Anyway, the king tide coming to the Oregon coast. Uh, mention it for two th- two uh, reasons. One is it's really fun to watch a, a storm along the Oregon coast, but also as a warning, if you're planning on being there, they say if you're walking along the uh, the water, be wary. We know sneaker waves are a common occurrence here in uh, the Oregon coast and Washington as well, I suppose, uh, you need to be extra careful. So keep that in mind. Also, I went earlier today during my lunch hour and I bought change for my car. Now I know there are differing opinions here at the uh, station as to whose weather forecasts are most reliable. Some suggest that some of the more popular meteorologists in the area are a bit, um, well, overstated. Others are more reliable and have a, a long history of being so. In any case, there's a, a effort to try to determine whether or not there's going to be um, snow coming to the Portland metro area over the next few days, uh, mainly over the beginning of next week and perhaps as early as Sunday. Well, there was a morning update uh, today uh, in which uh, we were told at this point there's little chance uh, to the extended forecast, which continues to show the arrival of Arctic air next Monday night into Tuesday. At this point, there's little change. Well, the push of uh, cold air may be accompanied with snow showers and Portland's first coverage of snow on the ground Tuesday morning. This first snow chance uh, wouldn't be much, but we could see a few inches. Uh, Now, in Portland uh, speak, that is much because we are so ill-acquainted with uh, uh, with snow, we tend to panic. But nonetheless, we could see as much as a few inches. Uh, they're tracking a chance of significant snow or icy mix on Wednesday night into Thursday. There's still uh, uncertainties, but a snow day next week is a possibility. Not a certainty, but a possibility. I went today because I'm driving a, a, a vehicle that never lived through a, a stormy, at least in my uh, in my care through a stormy season, didn't have any chains. So I went and bought chains today. I'm not sure if I'll use them or not. And I can actually return them if the season comes and goes without my having uh, used them, but I'm trying to be prepared. 
Uh, we're also hearing that Matt uh, Zafino says, yes, there is potential for valley snow next week, but even more uncertainty regarding timing, location, and amounts. In other words, we don't know. Uh, the question uh, is, will there be enough moisture to work with when the really cold air arrives? Uh, so there's still much uncertainty regarding valley snow, but stay tuned. Uh, we've got thick fog tonight in the wake of um, evening rain. Visibility has already dropped to a 1.2, um, I guess that's milliliters, miles, I have no idea, uh, in parts of the valley. We should get uh, a better idea as the uh, the, the day approaches when uh, they say snow may be in the forecast. So keep your, um, keep your eyes open, your ears open, and we'll try to follow, well, as reliable as uh, meteorologists are or are not. Um, We'll try to follow what they're saying is likely to happen over the next week. But I know I'm prepared. I've got my snow chains. I don't have any idea how to put them on the car, but I'll look at the instructions and see, you know, just in case I might need them because there is no snow day in radio. We've been uh, instructed that if there is snow, if weather conditions are rough and it's possible for you to get from where you live to where you work, you must be here. So (laughs) that's that's the goal. So I've got my chains. I I remember last time we had this snowy weather, I actually was involved in a collision. The car slid at very low speed, but slid into a parked vehicle, which meant I then had to try to navigate um, the car away from the vehicle I struck to find a place to park, to go back and leave a sign in the window announcing what had happened and all of that. So this time around, I got the chains. Let's see if I can figure out how to put them on. All right. Uh, tomorrow, uh, again, we're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news. I want to thank James Blinn for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.